You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. David Ottlinger, it is good to see you again. Good to see you, Dan. Uh, welcome to the members of the Sophia audience. Uh, I am Daniel Coffin, a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University and founder and co-founder and editor of the Electric Agora, an online magazine devoted to philosophy, politics, culture, humor, and everything in between. And I'm with joined again by David Ottlinger, formerly of the Georgia State Philosophy Department and now intellectual at large. Um, and one of our most valued contributors at the Electric Agora. Thank you. Formerly um, a student at, at GSU. Yes, a graduate student. Um, yeah. Although you, you did teach, right? Um, yes. Yeah, you yeah. Um, the, that, that slave labor that all graduate students <laughs> engage in so that the uh, really important people don't have mm -hmm. to grade exams or do any of that sort of thing, right? Yeah, the alienation of labor. <laughs> Although the supposedly really important people did a lot of hefty, heavy lifting too. So. Did they really? Oh you, yeah. You had top people to, would teach Gen Ed and intro and. Um, pretty top people. Yeah. Or it, it or really does things. it varies? It varies uh, a lot from place to place. Certainly, mm -hmm. uh, it's not something that's generally uh, that's universally true. Um, um, when I was at the Graduate Center back in the 90s, you know, I had people, I had professors like Jerry Fodor mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and Hartree Field and Stephen Schiffer, and I often wondered whether they, when the last time they had taught an introduction to philosophy class was, and I suspect it was long ago. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you're right, I mean, when I was at Michigan, I did have some, I mean, uh, you know, I, Crispin Wright taught a, an epistemology survey. Um, that wasn't gen ed, but it was, you know, a class of 50 people and all that sort of thing. So, um, um, so, one, yeah, go ahead. Famous, one very famous philosopher in Chicago where I did my undergrad. Um, I'm not going to say who this person was, but I was looking, I look out every semester to see if this person was going to teach a class. And this person taught, I caught this person teaching a class to undergrads once. And it was a text that they were looking at in the original Latin. And you took it, of course. No. <laughs> <laughs> Your Latin not being quite up to speed, is that? No, no. <laughs> um, so yeah, I know the feeling. Right. So, um, David, last time we spent the full the full length of the the dialogue talking about just trying to sort of set out what classical liberalism is um, and talking in some detail about what we took to be two of its main uh, architects, that being uh, the philosophers John Locke and John Stuart Mill, and the specific text, most important text being Locke's Second Treatise of Government and Mill's On Liberty, with, of course, some supporting uh, materials. Um, uh, do, do you want to maybe give a quick refresher of what we of what we of what we said? Um, what those four basic elements of liberalism were? You said you have them handily nearby, so that I don't have to sort of plumb through my destroyed brain and uh, <laughs> find them. Um, so why don't you go ahead and re and, re and rehearse them? You and your destroyed brain can relax. I can just read them right here. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
The individual self is fully realized and identifiable separately from anyone else. So that's number one. Number two, the individual is the fundamental unit of social reality. Number three, the individual is the sole locus of natural authority. Number four, the chief aim of society is to facilitate the individual's pursuit of his or her own good. And so we kind of talked a lot about how these were interdependent and how they kind of overlapped. <clears throat> and, um, but basically the idea is that society is a collection of different individuals, each individual having their own distinct, more or less distinct, as we talked about, good for themselves. And society is a cooperation between these distinct individuals. And it exists to serve their, their individual aims and individual goods. And it is legitimate insofar as it does that. Right. So it's right. a very individual-centric kind of um, That's right. political philosophy. I had, I made occasional sort of quick, somewhat drive-by contrast to someone like Aristotle, who for Aristotle, being happy, it's like um, people doing um, rowing, you know? The, you know, the boats where they have a whole bunch of... Yeah, crew. <coughs> yeah, crew, yeah. young wasps in the boats. <laughs> they, but they all, it, they, what they're doing depends on them all doing it together. Yeah. It's an organization. It's a group activity. And there's a common conception of the good. It's, there's a good that applies to them all. Um, right. um, the, the, good, rowing the good is not boat. individualized. Right. The rowing of the boat is yeah. prior to what is good for each individual rower to do. That's right. The good of the boat is prior to the good of the individual. In the classical liberal scheme, it's the good of the... The individual is prior to the right. good of the society. Right. The society exists to promote the good of the individual. That's being, that's a little quick and dirty. Aristotle's not completely right. individualistic. And the, and the most common rationale, of course, is that which is for the society on the liberal view is that which is offered by the social contract arguments that Locke makes. One doesn't have to be a social contractarian to be a liberal. Um, it, Hume, in many ways, was a liberal and explicitly opposed social contract theory. Um, and even Edmund Burke, who's, who's viewed as the, the godfather of modern conservatism, in many ways is classically liberal in his, a lot of his values, but he too rejects social contractarian reasoning. Nonetheless, it's the most common way of explaining why all these individuals with their separate goods nonetheless agree to form societies, and that has to do with the fact that they sort of recognize that their own individual good is actually better served if they are in, um, uh, in some sort of confederation with one another rather than each one being, in a sense, a separate, uh, a separate society unto his or her own self. Um, uh, one of the things that we didn't so much debate but sort of wanted to, wanted to sort of refine was the sense in which Locke's is, is in many ways a much more abstract account of, of individualism and of liberal, liberalism than Mill's. And one of the things that you pointed out, I think, you know, very, very rightly, was that Mill wants to make it very clear that in an actual real society, the individual, while formally self-sufficient, is not 
materially self-sufficient. That is, that the individual does rely upon substantial social support in order to be able to pursue his or her own happiness. Um, and so that the individualism not, is not quite as pure in Mill's liberalism as in Locke's. Would you say that's a fair characterization of the sort of the point you were trying to make? Yes. The second um, part of the dialogue? And um, several things. For one thing, Mill emphasizes more, you know, the, we, we depend upon others not only to not be indigent, um, in, in which we can't pursue our own good when we're indigent. Right, if you're but, homeless and living under a bridge, right, right. 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 You certainly can't um, listen to operas or read Wordsworth or the things that Mill tended to think really made life worthwhile. <clears throat> but you also can't pursue higher pleasures and um, develop tastes and complicated philosophical ideas if you don't have um, personal relationships, people to debate with, friendships. Right. Um, and that's why Mill focused so much on how infringements on free speech operate and free thought operate not at the level of the state but at the level of the civil society that he was as concerned about efforts to sort of suppress the individual or force the individual to conform that were informal uh, as opposed to you know employing social sanction as opposed to um, as opposed to state a formal state uh, state laws yeah, and, and stuff. we're going to hopefully talk about political correctness eventually yeah we will today that's that's one thing I really wanted to highlight where Mill seems quite contemporary is a lot of people view complaints about chilling effects and the um, uh, the sort of the the sense of being accused that seems to go with the kind of liberal discourse of policing language contemporary sort of social justice. Uh, discourse, yeah. They see that that kind of complaints about chilling effects as a kind of excuse to continue to do the kind of whatever racist, sexist stuff we wanted to do. Yeah. That can only be a kind of throwing up a roadblock. Whereas for Mill, it's really vital because the ability to express yourself freely and to um, confront truth with error and to let your mind go wherever it will go, sometimes into error, sometimes into mistakes, is not only um, instrumentally kind of important, where that's going to help us establish things, but it's just sort of healthy yeah. and a, a vital, um, uh, a, a um, enthusiastic political life will require that kind of right. freedom. Let me ask you something about this, though. This, you know, this this didn't just occur to me. Um, but please don't feel like I'm. I hope you don't feel like I'm, I'm. I'm coming up with something unexpected, too unexpected. But this is an argument I've had with several people in another context, and I just want to get your take on it. Um, you could look at the whole idea of social shaming and sanction and all that sort of thing in a different light, and that is as essential to liberty in the following sense. Um, the more social sanction 
and the, the more that we employ non-formal, non-legal, social sanctions to, in a sense, police one another, um, the less we need the state to do it. In other words, in other words, one, couldn't one argue, hey, what are you complaining about all these social justice warriors? Um, be glad it's not the state doing this. I mean, I mean, you know, th you know, this is what you want. You want most sanction, as much sanction as possible to be informal, and to come from social dynamics rather than from the heavy-handed uh, and violence-backed uh, 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 fist of the state. What, 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 how do you see what you're saying playing relative to that? Well, that's we may have to kick this a little bit of this down the road, but I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true, and there there are good examples of this, uncontroversially good examples of this. Like we don't worry about people dueling anymore. Like there's no people did duel, um, but now people don't, and people don't want to. That would be seen as vulgar and really, you know, retro bestial. It would be um, it's lost its aura of nobility. So we don't have to worry about policing. We don't have to because it's at a cultural level where it's not sought after and lots of things are like that. Um, it's important to realize Mill is not against any kind of cultural shaming or cultural reinforcement. He explicitly endorses at least some um, sort of cultural censorship, social censorship, um, particularly for rudeness. Um, so then what is, how do you separate his concern? How does his concern sit comfortably with this other point that we've just made? Mm -hmm. It's, he's not afraid of um, the contents of thoughts. He thinks thoughts can be entertained and debated in without the entertaining of error will not necessarily lead to error in our the way we structure our society we'll be able to entertain it and reject it right right but i think so so maybe I put this a different way what kind of informal social sanction is he worried about and what kind of informal social sanction does he think is important to avoid a heavy-handed state? Right, right. Um, well, I don't think he was sort of worried about a heavy-handed state. In fact, he says at the beginning on the liberty, it's kind of a funny passage, he said, well, nowadays, he's, or he says, like, I was just about to write, we don't worry about the state coming and shutting down publishers, but then we all saw this incident last year or something, you know, it's, uh, he said that, so he raises the worry, like it's always a live concern, but basically we don't have that problem now in Britain. Right. And uh, that, that gets at the point, one of the things you said last time that's really, really important is that you have to understand the difference between Locke and Mill's liberalism in good part in terms of the difference in the environments in which they were writing, right? Um, Locke was writing much earlier. It was before sort of English demo liberal democracy had fully taken root, 
Um, <laughs> there was still issues of monar- you know, real issues of monarchy and and and, and oppression. Um, well, it was written when the um, Parliament and Parliament, not the House of Commons, Parliament and um, Charles were facing each other down. Yeah. They were engaged in real brinksmanship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was taking sides, yeah. Okay, so um, that's, that's, I think that's a nice enough summary, and, and, and people, people can obviously will watch the first one, and I think they'll have a pretty good idea of what we're talking about when we talk about classical liberalism. Um, what we wanted to do today is talk about what has befallen classical liberalism in the United States, um, um, uh, especially since the Second World War. Um, and um, one of, uh, since, actually, I would let me, let, me, let me make that a little bit more specific, especially since the Depression and the New, and the New Deal and the Second World War. Um, but I, I guess one thing that we probably should just spend a minute on is, you know, someone might very well say, well, here you guys, you're, you're, you're reading your hands about the, 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 the sad fortunes of liberal democracy, um, but whoever, whoever said that the United States was supposed to be a classical, classical liberal polity to begin with? So um, maybe we should just say one or two words about the question of whether the United States, in its design, is intended to be a classical liberal polis. Um, now, I think the argument is that it clearly is. You have a bit more of a nuanced and more qualified view of this. So um, um, maybe, maybe, maybe we should just sort of talk around that at least for a few minutes um, and let people see what the relevant issues, uh, what the relevant issues are, right? Um, so, so my argument that it is, what was intended to be a classical liberal policy is pretty simple. Um, if you look at the Declaration of Independence and then you look at the Bill of Rights, it seems quite clear that not only is a heavy emphasis being placed on the individual and the individual's pursuit of happiness, but a pretty rigorously defined sphere of individual prerogative is built into the Bill of Rights um, to the point to which it virtually sacralizes that private individual space and places it beyond the reach of at least ordinary democratic consensus and government regulation. Now, I would argue that that in itself is sufficient to say that the United States was intended to be at least in large part a liberal polity with perhaps some romanticized notions of classical republicanism sort of sprinkled on top. Um, um, but you're, you, you have a bit of a more mixed view of this, so I, I'd like to hear your view of it, and then people at least will see what the various positions on this question are. Yeah. Um, well, we're, I guess to address a prior point, you and I are both satisfied that, I, I think I'd phrase it slightly differently than what you said. I'd say, rather than what's befallen classical liberalism, I'd say, you know, there's at least been a kind of a degraded faith in certain classical liberal principles um, evinced in common political practice. I suppose the case, why we both feel that way, uh, will become clearer as we move along. But right. anyway, it's a standing debate, so I guess we don't really need to prove it. Um, so as a question of the sort of early modern context and how much is classical liberalism sort of at the root? Well, 
I think we probably do a fair amount of violence to the tradition if we think about um, if we try to really separate in a firm way classical liberal tradition from more communitarian tradition because they overlap in, in figures and in philosophical substance in the sort of ways that we began exploring in the difference between Locke and Mill. Mill was, I argued, and I think not terribly controversially, that uh, Mill was arguing for a greater dependence of the individual on culture and community, but still very much wanting to hold firm to the certain sort of principles of individualism and the sense that um, the legitimacy of the government consisted in serving the individual ends. And I think this is rather typical of a lot of early modern thinking. Um, Hobbes is one of those people who, who really scared everyone. Um, Hobbes was the sort of original individualist who was very much against, in the 17th century, very much against um, the tyranny of the schoolmen, by, by whom he meant the people who went to universities and learned a lot of Aristotle. The people who were trained in the medieval scholastic tradition. Right, yeah. which was, by that time, very dominated by yeah. Aristotle. Um, and very, fortunately, we mentioned Aristotle, that he's much more community-oriented. Yeah. Less, less individualistic. Right. Um, and so he, reacting, a, a vain sort of thinker, and very much impressed with his own intelligence and his own novelty, really emphasizes the difference between himself and, and these, these schoolmen, and has a, a really harshly individualistic and even seemingly at least kind of egoistic um, and very, very dark view of human, humanity and people's capacity for benevolence and community and um, for cooperation and fellow feeling, things like that. Um, maybe more, you know, more recent commentators have said on a more careful reading, it's maybe not as dark as people thought. But the point for what I'm saying right now is he seemed to have this very, seemed to other early moderns to have this very, very dark view in which people were very separated, had just their own ends, and just kind of had to get together and appoint um, government in order to basically protect themselves from each other. Um, and a lot of people read that and they saw the power of the kind of because he was also a social contractary. They the saw first. the power. Yeah, the first one. Right. Yeah. He saw. They saw the power of the social contractarian framework, and of this kind of idea that the sovereign individuality of his philosophy. But they did not buy the kind of harshly individualistic, really almost sort of asocial kind of picture of humanity that they 
that he seemed to have. And so they started, you know, some people, um, Joseph Butler is a good example, where seemed to be looking at Aristotle with one eye and looking at Hobbes with another eye, Hobbes and Locke with another eye and thinking, well, there has to be a way to sort of put these together. Um, and they started to come up with more complicated views in which, um, look, people were in the private sphere dependent for their own good, dependent on um, on all kinds of associations to be the kinds of beings that they are. But then they also had this kind of autonomy that they could negotiate their own good in the public sphere. So it's a less atomistic, less individualistic view, but it still leaves the sovereign sort of rights of the individual. I feel I've been talking much too. So, so you, you, in a sense, what you, you you really think that um, this is almost a little bit like a very typically analytic philosopher's over um, excessive distinction making. I mean, to the point. I mean, the fact that one can theoretically distinguish liberal from communitarian <coughs> ideas doesn't mean that in actual history, these things were in a sense separ entirely separable in the way in the way that I've suggested. You're saying it was always a more mixed affair than that, right? Yeah, um, I, I was thinking about that. You ended with that last, do you remember that the, the end of the last dialogue we were sort of talking about whether we were both maybe getting into a little, what Wilfred Sellers called concept chopping. Yeah, yeah. Seemed to define the analytic philosophy and <clears throat> I thought it would be easy to sort of score cheap rhetorical points about analytic philosophy and its purblind, occasional purblindness, where its obsession with schools and isms, and that, you know, the ancients and early moderns were less concerned with schools yeah. and isms. And you kind of wind up giving a distorted picture of history when you, when you, when you apply that too stringently to a historical discussion of what actually unfolded, right? Um, yeah, um, but I, I mean, I didn't do that because yes and no. I think there's uh, there's a there is a compatibility as as we were talking about with Mill as opposed to Locke. There's a deeper compatibility that on the one hand we want a society of autonomous individual agents reaching their own individual and distinct and uh, various goods. And on the other hand, that individuals in order to do that need to be dependent on certain cultural, um, certain cultural resources, not merely in the sense of material resources, but yeah. you know, access to friends and community and um, um, you know, and venues in which and venues in which to express themselves and, and all this sort of stuff that requires um, and things like that, that requires more than bare contractual relations, right? That that, that right. requires sort of you know 
us to help each other out and, and maybe even to create a system of, of, of mutual support that everybody sort of pays into, i.e. just redistribute some redistributive taxation and that, all that sort of thing. And a friendship is not an agreement, right? Right. If we agree to be friends, if I agree to be your friend and you agree to be my friend, that doesn't make us friends. That's right. That's right. A friend, it's, it's a, it's a yeah, inability to interact, a relationship, a desire to interact that comes out of associating with people. Right. And this is all prior to forming the social contract, but that's not that does not make the social contract irrelevant. Right. Uh, um, right. And it does not negate the individualism. Uh, so and I think and I think you know I just wanted to do this just so that people would be aware that there is actually some disagreement about this that's not it's, it's not quite so simple as to say oh America was designed as a, to be a classical liberal country. Um, but we do, I think, both agree that classical liberalism comprises one of the core elements yeah. of the American of the country that the American founders des designed, um, expressed their aspirations for in the Declaration, and then provided the sort of the, the the governing structure for in the Constitution, with the Bill of Rights being the most obvious liberal influence in that document. Um, so now the make. Congress shall make no law. Right, right. This idea the will of the people cannot, um, as you said, it's not, the democratic consensus is irrelevant. Right. We talk about the rule of law. Some of them took that very seriously, that the law is the thing that rules, not the people. Yeah. The law. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that, that's beyond, it's putting something beyond the popular will. Right. Which is, um, requires a certain justification. Right. right. I was speaking about the intellectual milieu, and I went longer than I meant to. Do you want Do you want me to say something about the political milieu? Yeah, just yeah, sure. Yeah, because and then because so I was saying that there's a sort of communitarian strains and more more and less harshly individualistic strains in the kind of early modern thought, and then you get down to um, the political, so where the rubber meets the road. Um, it's even, you know, less clear. I, I'm not going to read the quote, but I came across um, uh, a quote by Gordon S. Wood, who is um, an intellectual historian of the Revolution and early the early Republic, who made the point that to people like Jefferson, um, the 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 subtle differences that we talk about in philosophy classrooms between more humanitarian strains of Hutchinson and uh, Butler and more individualistic strains of Locke were just, they were not always tuned into those. Um, or the difference between contractarians and non-contractarians. Right. Partly because the practical um, implications of that are not always clear. And when you're in a place where you're trying to negotiate a treaty with France and or trying to negotiate uh, a peace in London or France or with Indians, uh, Cherokee, and trying to get money for a revolution and trying to figure out what your opponents are doing, then you may not be as focused on that as you otherwise would be. But in the thoughts of the various founders, you can see definitely Jefferson's language 
in Jefferson in particular, you see both aspects. You see the clear language of the Declaration of Independence, which became very sort of sacred early on, of um, liberties and truths held self-evident, and sort of the sacredness of rights, the inviolability of rights. And then you also hear the very communitarian aspects of it, which I think is no mere sentimentalism, but something that he that he thought very deeply about, that the American people had to be exceptional in order to support this um, uh, Republican experiment. They had the idea to that be, liberty was for men already a virtue, that, 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 that it was not, yes. and, and that therefore implies a pretty robust, interconnected, more communitarian notion yeah. of, 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 of a civil society underneath, right? Um, um, which, I guess ties, which I guess ties to Burke's remark in the revolution, remarks in the Revolution of France about, you know, um, something to the effect of, uh, we better see what men are going to do with their liberty before we, uh, before we extol it or before we praise it, right? I mean, um, 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 well, Burke, Burke remembers, approved of the American Revolution, disapproved of the French Revolution, right. because the Americans, during salutary neglect, the time when England didn't really pay attention to the colonies, formed all these democratic institutions and built a culture of using them and arguing and meeting each other and debating and writing pamphlets and protesting. And America, excuse me, France was the ancient regime, which was the very, um, very centralized, very deferential culture. And he said, well, what, you had the three estates come together and try to negotiate something. That was your institution to fall back on. And he said, once that didn't work, you should have forgotten. Yeah, yeah. And you had nothing to fall back on. Yeah. And there was going to be social chaos. Yeah. So we, we, we are agreed that classical liberalism at least does form one of the core elements of, of, of the American polity as it was originally conceived. Um, and I we also both agreed that Classical liberalism in the United States certainly has fallen, on, has seen better days, has fallen on somewhat hard times. Um, you, know, this, you know, this comes from two directions. There is, of course, always going to be the conservative um, opposition to, uh, uh, to sort of uh, classical liberal ideas um, and values. But what's, what I think both of us think is more notable, certainly since the Second World War, um, is the fact that the liberal, the, the left-wing consensus is sort of broken up, or and and somewhat transformed, um, that the that that the Democratic Party was it was a more liberal party earlier on and became uh, something else later on. Uh, maybe we'll use the word progressive to distinguish uh, those two parts of the left-wing coalition. Um, so the question now becomes: Well, what's what's the story there? You know, to what? What is the story of the problematizing of classical liberalism in the United States, do you think, um, um, over the last hundred years or so? A lot, of people, a lot of people would say, hey, you know, once the New Deal came along, you already, you know, all this redistribution, all of these massive public institutions, the creation of the first version of the welfare state, um, um, that, you know, Coolidge was your classical liberal, and then and then FDR sort of 
was the beginning of the end of it. Now, I know you don't agree with that, but maybe you want to talk through why you don't think that that's the right way to look at this. Yeah, well, I suppose that's kind of the neoconservative or the, the neoliberal um, narrative, yeah. right? Um, which I'm not saying that to poison the well. Um, it, it has some things going for it, but... Um, which also, the people that we now think of as conservative sometimes like to think of themselves as classically liberal. Yeah. Which... I've actually argued in other places that I'm not sure there ever really was true conservatism in the United States, other than maybe amongst obscure early people like Fisher Ames um, and, and the like, but that you really can't have a conservative tradition without a genuine aristocracy, without genuine, um, um, without a society in which tradition play, plays really a significant role, authoritative role. Um, that in America, really, all you had was liberals of one stripe or another. I mean, I've made that sort of argument elsewhere, but I don't, I, I, we shouldn't relitigate that now just because it's going to get us way off. Um, but you're right, of course, that the neoconservative, uh, there is this sort of story about that, that America was classically liberal up through Coolidge, who was like its you know, sort of most perfect expression, and then because of the Depression, and, and we were sort of forced to become a more socialist economy, and that with that, Came a kind of a move away from uh, classical liberalism towards, uh, I guess, what today we want to say would be a more more progressive uh, left-wing uh, political consensus. But you think that that's wrong. You don't think that the New Deal in any way compromised classical liberal values. And part of it, I think, it has to do with the fact this this what we've been talking about between Mill and Locke, right? So, right, yeah. so maybe you want to maybe just let, let, let's let's hear your version of why that that. That typical story that you hear um, about Coolidge and FDR is wrong. So we we talked about what Mill and Locke, where they differed, and where maybe Mill added and qualified things. But we sort of agreed that what they generally had in common was um, the general thrust of their philosophy that a good society was a society in which a lot of different individuals pursued their own individual goods and had a sort of, especially Mill emphasizes a kind of vibrant diversity and um, lots of um, different kinds of projects and debates and disagreements and sort of um, vital experimentation. In thought and in living, right. Um, and the justification for a sort of redistributive, um, more bureaucratic liberalism very much comes from that same sort of general thrust. As we already said, you can't have um, this sort of vibrant individual experiments in living if people are indigent. Right. They, they don't have a chance to contribute to the grand debate. They don't have a chance to to um, to experiment in living and do all the things that, that Mill thinks is important. Re realize the higher goods. Right. Right. So in, a, in a sense what you're saying is look, you know 
you know, we did an experiment in a sense, right? You know, you know, is is laissez-faire economics the best, you know, expression of sort of classic liberal uh, values? And when we discovered that, well, when if you do that, it can lead to a kind of economic collapse that can literally make it impossible for huge numbers of people to pursue mm -hmm. the individual good. What you're saying, in a sense, is that you know what the depression taught us was that laissez-faire economics is not really an ex the, the, the best expression of classical liberal values, right? Is that, that the right. sense? And, or to put it maybe differently, why is it that a liberal, a sort of modern liberal, is concerned with people who are just sort of living hand-to-mouth or poor, don't have a lot of opportunities? Why do they feel justified in advancing their political cause? And, making claims on other people's property on their behalf. Well, they're concerned with that person's liberty. They're concerned with that person's ability to realize themselves. They're concerned that that person um, deserves something that they're not getting. Um, so that is an appeal to liberal principles. Right. I want us to link to a great I, I feel like I'm always bringing up blogging head stuff on blogging heads. I, I do read other things <laughs> and, and listen to other things. But, um, I'm there's sure a, Bob Wright won't mind you citing blogging heads in your blogging heads. Uh, 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 well, no, it's Boston Review, which is... Josh, Josh, Cohen, Josh Cohen is the editor of that, right? Yeah. And he talks um, to Glenn Lowry occasionally. Yeah, and yeah. other people too. Yeah. But, um, he was... Um, that, that's the... Seven Degrees of Separation, but the, the the article there is written by Elizabeth Anderson, who is somebody who's at Michigan. She's yep. thought about she's thought about liberalism and its history a lot more than than I have by orders of magnitude. So I commend this article to everyone, where she talks about how um, a liberal order of it was the idea of some redistributive scheme, some kind of social insurance was introduced in the early modern period um, as a kind of defense or propping up of uh, liberal, shoring up of liberal democratic private property order. That the thought was without this sort of um, support, a system of private property and liberal democracy would eventually collapse it would eventually suffer the shocks of the outrage of um, of the huge numbers of people that could not pursue their own happiness. Right. 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 Which is a purely political right. Um, purely political pragmatic reason. Um, yeah. Against yeah. the modern. Yeah, I think you know the more you say this, the more I'm convinced you're right, and it was me that was sort of pushing back against it a little bit to begin with, but you know. Going back to those four elements of classical liberalism, if you think about the New Deal, um, the really the only one that it compromises in any way is the one about the self-sufficiency of the individual, right? And that's, in a sense, in some ways, the least important one, right? I mean, what it doesn't compromise on is the ultimate value of the individual and the individual's pursuit of, ha of, of his or her own happiness. In other words, there's no effort to make the case that the good is somehow general or, so, or socially universal. In other words, 
you know, you can very clearly distinguish Marxist, Marxist, and other forms of socialist leftism from New Dealism precisely because they don't just abandon the idea that the individual is self-sufficient. They also abandon the idea of the fundamental value of individual liberty and the individual's pursuit of happiness in favor of a more collectivist conception of the good. Would you not? Would you not say? Uh, I'm not. Uh, it depends on your Marxist. I'm not sure Marx himself is that collectivist, but um, I, I don't want to. That might be more weight than we want to. Well, I, I mean, I guess the reason I'm saying this is because otherwise, you know, it's often people often try to say that New Dealism is just the least extreme version of this sort of drift towards socialism in which Marxism is at the at the far <laughs> end. Um, and that that's why it was illiberal, right? And that, that that's right. and right. and what I what I want to say is that look to the extent to which, really, New Dealism all it's doing is sort of recognizing the fact that laissez-faire economics just simply makes it too easy for too many people to fall to a point to which they can no longer pursue their individual happiness. That we have to take really seriously Mill's point about the interconnectedness of people at some basic level. Um, both material and, and in terms of social and cultural support, and that we therefore at least have to be a bit more realistic about the self-sufficiency of the individual. Um, but we can still hold as sacred the idea that the point of all of this is for the individual to pursue the individual's yep. own good, and that that good may yep. be different from the good of others, right? That's right. So it does not prize the uniqueness and the in, and the separateness of the individual any less. Or the I value would. of that individual in this. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, as opposed to something like, uh, I mean, this is sort of, this, this will always sound cheap, but I mean it as a, a foil to set something off, is if you look at the sort of fascist regimes, um, <coughs> where what does it mean to not value the individual's good as an individual. Well, you know, look at their propaganda. Um, you know, the fascists, Nazi fascists, started dressing people in uniforms. And they were all going to have this one culture, one political culture, one entertainment culture. They were not going to have different debates about different ideas. Right, and, were, and the, Volk, the Volk was considered prior to the individual, right? I mean, yeah. I mean conceptually prior to the individual. The yes, the 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 people, the folk, yeah, the yeah. the that one culture was what was going to bring happiness to everyone. That's an extreme form of it. But I mean, there are also, ironically, certain forms of conservatism, like the Ted Cruz kind of conservatism, sound more like more like a kind of individualist, collectivist. No, I'm not saying Ted Cruz is a Nazi. I know he's not a Nazi. Yeah, of course not. Very different kind of unpleasant. No, of course not, yeah. But he does seem to, or um, or Mike Huckabee has a book, which I'm proud of not having read, of course, but it's like called Guns, Grits, God. It's like Guns, Grits, and God. Guns, Grits, God, and Gravy. I'm not sure I got the order right. But, God Almighty. But yeah, exactly. There's, that's a sort of an idea of a culture, right? And that's the culture that's going to be bring 
good to everyone. It's yeah. a common Christian um, sort of culture, and there's variation within it. But we're not going to let you have pornography, or we're not we're not going to let you have Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Those are bad influences. What we all need to do is come together as a community and rally around these common common goods. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so so the, the the point is is that the abandonment of liberalism doesn't stem from adopting a more realistic attitude about the self-sufficiency element, right? It stems from a rejection of um, or an adulterating of the, um, the, 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 the the qualitative dimension of the of, of, of the, uh, the qualitative dimension of liberalism's individualism that is rejecting the idea that somehow it is a good thing that individuals have all their own different conceptions of the good and that the primary purpose of this of the state is, is the, of the society is to allow them to pursue those individual conceptions of the good um, and that, that, that so long as those are still held relatively uh, sacred um, you still have a, a, an essentially liberal uh, philosophy um, and so the New Deal really didn't touch those elements. It really only addressed the issue of the claims of individual self-sufficiency. And one could argue, um, you know, was proven right by, by its necessity, so to speak, right? I mean, you know, the Great Depression uh, showed us that that, that was the case. Or um, 2008. Yeah, or 2008. Right, right, right. Um, um, so then what do you take to be... I'm sorry, go ahead. I also wanted to add that we are talking very much about economic liberties and um, rights to some basic income or rights if you're more affluent to keep your income and the competing tensions there. But then there are also civil liberties. And, you know, <clears throat> America is notoriously defensive of its freedoms of speech relative to other countries. And um, generally been um, very liberal about other, um, of course, it's a very complicated history and we have to make room for all the civil liberty struggles of the 60s, but it's generally held fundamental civil liberties to be very sacred. They do not, to me, seem to have been eroded by the New Deal. Right. It did not become difficult to have conservative or Marxist opinions or to express them or get them published after the 1930s or 40s. There was not a sort of strong that I can... Other than, well, I guess the obvious, the obvious instance would be, the McCarth would be McCarthyism, right? But that, of course, is precisely a sort of, sort of the right-wing abandonment of liberalism that we would want to point to as Exhibit A, right? I mean... Well, and even by the time McCarthy fell, it was, you know, the sense was he had been exposed as a, as a kind of contagion. You know, he was not really representing the Central American tradition. Right. Perverting it. Right. Um, so, so, let me ask you then, I agree with you that that New Dealism does not represent the point at which American liberalism began to erode or transform, or however you want to describe it. Um, the question then is, 
what did make it, in what way has it eroded, and, and, and where do you look to to see that erosion or adulteration or however you want to characterize what happened to American liberalism? So after kind of sniffing around it for a long time, I'm hoping soon to put something up on the Agora, which is my kind of like central statement about what I would define as political correctness. And I think what are the sort of the problems of the decline of liberalism in our times, at least on the left. And um, I think fundamentally it has to do with a degraded, I've used this phrase before, a degraded faith in autonomy and in our ability to entertain things um, and make decisions on what, uh, whether or not to act on them. And, or the connection between ideas and thoughts and behaviors. It seems to be an almost automatic and necessary connection in the minds of certain people on the left. Whereas it should not be if you have a sort of view of human beings as autonomous and um, decision-making. Uh, and I think it has to do with the very closely related idea that culture really makes people. Culture is very strongly determining of what people do and what people say, how they end up behaving. And that realistically, if we want to change people's behavior, the best thing to do is to go about changing the culture around them. Now, the, the yeah, roots of this idea and sort of where it entered the American bloodstream, I'm still tapping around in the dark. You, you're, you are, I defer to you um, to some, uh, some extent, but it, uh, to a large extent, but it does seem to have something to do, and I'm not the first to, to note this, with these sort of new left ideologies and these sort of post-war, largely continental ideas. Right, by new left is generally meant the neo-Marxist-inspired philosophy of the Frankfurt School, um, of, of whom people like uh, Horkheimer and Herbert Mar Herbert Marcuse are probably the best known uh, best known um, uh, 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 figures. Although the way you just described this to me makes me now wonder whether the, whether the sources are all over the place. I mean, you could argue that 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 the entire drift of modern social science, increasingly in in direction of the idea that human behavior is sort of law governed. Um, either, either along the lines of behaviorist, uh, behaviorism, or along the lines of sort of you know neuro neuro reductionism, right? Um, um, or even Freudianism, right? I mean, I mean, yep. the idea at least is supposed to be that ultimately there are these there are going to be these laws that that would describe the way the unconscious uh, uh, you know for, manipulates one, and then you know. Or even now, behave, behave in ways that are not penetrable by their own rational consciousness, um, and so I, I'm wondering whether the sources of this aren't just the new left, but you know, in a sense, modern uh, the modern scientific picture of human nature 
that's been emerging uh, uh, over the over the last hundred years. And I'll just add to that: that even the modern cognitive behavioral psychology is not necessarily immune to that. That's been a big conversation over the past several years. Um, my uh, a sometimes teacher of mine, Eddie Namias at GSU, is somebody. <laughs> I don't. I don't know where he finds the strength, but he tries to do battle with these people and say that, you know, the social science is not implying that there can't be autonomy, but a lot of psychologists think um, <clears throat> he used to call them the illusionists. I think he was trying to retire that. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of cognitive psychologists who put, you know, say, and Harris has ever made it more vulgar and more popular. Yeah, Harris is sort of a vulgarized version of this sort of this sort of uh, idea. Um, but one one thing that's not, I, I, I'm going to ask you maybe to clarify a little more if you can, and that is, you know, we haven't talked a lot about autonomy in our definition of liberalism. Yeah. And and I'm not sure to be entirely clear to everyone what exactly you mean in the sense that in what way. Are, are the liberal ideas and values, the sort of idea of fundamental individual prerogative, the fundamental value of the individual's pursuit of his or her own happiness, and what that entails about the permissible constraints that a society can put on a person, right? And the, the, the permissible means by which the society and the state can try to influence that person and affect that person's uh, uh, behavior. How is all of that threatened by the suggestion that human autonomy is either less than we thought it was or is an illusion. Right, yeah. So I, I was just glancing nervously, just preparing for this, at the Stanford Encyclopedia philosophy article of John Stuart Mill. I just wanted to find something, but I... I came across this um, phrase, which I thought was great, um, which is, I can, I can no more achieve your higher good for you than I can win a race for you. It's, you know, if I say, stay here, I'm going to win the race for you, I can maybe give you the medal that I got afterward, but I won the race right. in virtue of the fact that I ran. I won the race. It's not your victory. And so your higher good is like that, in that it's only your higher good, it's sort of definitionally, if it's something that you rationally realize and choose for yourself. And along those lines, I mean, they're only your beliefs, right? Yeah. If you've consciously, rationally engage them and come right. to a sort and of decision, right? Mill's very sensible of that. It's, you know, you can sort of, if you don't really engage in an, in an active, uh, rational dispute and sort of make judgments and, and uh, sellers would call it placing things in the space of reason, sort of committing yourself to an idea and its consequences, then it will just become can't. It'll just become um, shibboleth. It will become something repeated 
that you're sort of carrying around with you and sort of believe, believe in a sense, at least believe you believe, but you're not rationally committed to in the same way. It's, it's sort of like you believe it because you've never questioned it. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so the idea is that, look, if, you, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're not committed to the idea that the individual is in some fundamental way autonomous, that is, able to rationally examine various propositions and various courses of action and various values and make conscious free choices as to those one can't really speak of anybody having beliefs or having an individual good and so in a sense it undermines the very notion of the individual as 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 liberalism conceives it is that sort of in a sense what you're saying yeah yeah it's your you you sink back into the culture then if it's not something you become that, a cipher for the things around you. you you're you're not you're not you're not you're not a per, you're not a person in a sense in the sense that it's commonly meant right you know? yeah with that can we do you, do we have time do we want to uh, abuse the pc well, I, I thought that that's where we were going to end up. So, I mean, I was going to ask you, okay, now that we've got this on straight, you are of, you have been very much of the view that one of the most, one of the strongest manifestations of illiberalism today yeah. is in so-called social justice slash politically correct culture. And presumably it's because you think that they attack directly this notion of individual autonomy, right? Yeah. And so I was going to then ask you, once we got that clear, what the relationship okay. is of autonomy to liberalism and why, if you reject it, you really are rejecting liberalism as a whole um, and liberal values as a whole, I was then going to ask you, okay, in what way is this being done by, right. by, um, by uh, uh, the social justice, the so-called social justice community uh, and um, uh, a politically correct culture. Well, um, the one the, the 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 last thing that I'll say in general terms is we agreed that uh, sort of fundamental, particularly in the last dialogue, but also in this, that liberal culture is a negotiation of individual people towards achieving helping individual ends to prosper. Right. If that negotiation is not possible, um, then the basic liberal, the, the liberal style of politics falls away. There really yeah. is no point in defending free speech anymore. If we're not able to deliberate and to entertain ideas and reject the ones that are wrong, and um, entertain the dangerous ones and then prefer the good ones and by this kind of um, process of rational deliberation. If we don't really have that ability, then there's what would be the point of free speech. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And similarly for other things. Okay, yeah, so, so you know, it, it's funny how this is actually harder to sort of articulate than you think it would be. I mean, I mean, 
because it strikes me, you know, when I think about the contemporary quote-unquote social justice community and PC culture, one of the things that strikes me very much about it is that they seem to think it's positively bad to allow the bad experiments and thought and living to even yeah. be aired, right? Um, and, 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 and they seem completely immune to Mill's very obvious point. That is, how would you know what the good ones are? If you never allowed the bad ones, you know, and I and I almost wonder whether this community thinks that one can determine what the bad ones are purely theoretically and not experimentally, right? Um, 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 that 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 somehow you could just sit in your armchair and figure out what the bad ones and the good ones are. Um, um, but you know that also gets to the question of whether we want to allow the bad ones to be aired solely because that's the only way to find out the good ones, or whether, even if we know the good ones, we want the bad ones to allow to be aired, right? Yeah. That, that we respect the individual enough that we he's allowed to live the bad one, right? <laughs> right, 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 even if it's bad for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do think, and first of all, let me say, we're now talking about social justice... Um, liberalism and what I've been calling PC or politically correct liberalism. Right. These sometimes been terms of abuse. I, I'm not using them as terms of abuse. I'm not sneering at this. And I think that those people who sneer and dismiss at this kind of style of thinking are often missing that it's a, it's a deeper and more resourceful kind of position than it's yeah. sometimes taken to be. Yeah. And there is, you know, a protracted logic to it. Um, and it's more coherent than it's sometimes taken to be. But So maybe you can say a little bit about what that is, okay? So so what's at the core of this, this social justice culture and slash PC culture? Um, what are some of the core ideas and what ways do they reject autonomy in the sense that you've meant um, and thus represent a departure from liberal ideas and values. So, if you're in, and I think I made a point of saying this in the last dialogue, if you believe in a Lockean Millian kind of point, <clears throat> Lockean Millian kind of conception of politics, and you want to change something, the locus of change is the individual. You appeal to the individual, um, maybe sometimes more than appeal, maybe engage in civil disobedience, which is a sort of part of the liberal tradition. But you appeal but, to their conscious rationality and conscious feelings, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Your appeal so, is overt in a way, right? I mean, it's sort of... Yes, and it's made with the expectation that they will autonomously change, or some of them, of course, autonomously change their own values and their own behaviors. Right. But so, also recognizes the possibility that they, are, that they may not. Absolutely. And that it's their prerogative to not accept. It may or may not be their prerogative, depending on the, the, <laughs> the specific kind of thing, because some things fall within and sometimes some things fall without the bounds of politics, ordinary politics, and you have to make a decision 
about which things. Well, I'm not talking about things about which, let's say, we've passed laws and made you know made, made crimes or whatever, um, but more a matter of matters of belief and value, right? Um, 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 I can try in a liberal society. I I can legitimately try to persuade you to think otherwise or value differently, right? But what I can't do is force you to do it. Or manipulate you to do it by 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 way of uh, subverting or doing an end run around your conscious rationality. Those are all forbidden in a liberal society because they are they are violations of the fundamental sovereignty of the individual and, and of the, of that of that sphere over which the individual is sovereign, namely his own thoughts, uh, his own beliefs, his own feelings, um, 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 and. And it's my impression, at least, that this is exactly what social justice, the so-called social justice movement, rejects. Um, yeah. They don't think that you have the right to your own your own views and feelings. They don't view that space as sacred in any way. And they think it's perfectly acceptable to manipulate, subvert, and otherwise threaten, coerce, and otherwise uh, get people to change their minds by what I would call illiberal means. Is that not the case? I agree that it is the case, and we want to make sure, so you use the words threaten and coerce. Um, immediately, the people who are sympathetic to this kind of thing will ride in and say, no, that's coerce, threaten. That's what you do when you have, you know, people come to, what is it, Vaxlav Havel? People come to his door and sort of, you know, take him to prison or beat him up. That's what... That's what happens in you know those kinds of countries where that stuff goes on. We don't threaten and coerce. We're just using our speech the same way you are, and we're using it to challenge you. <clears throat> so, the, so but let, let, let's speak. Let's stay on that for a minute. So, yeah. When, for example, at Yale, as a result of this Halloween costume fiasco, Erica Christakis, students try to get people. Fired and thus to lose their livelihood. Succeeded. Because they disagree with their thoughts, speech, and values. What's the <laughs> argument that that's not coercion? They couldn't, they can't force them. They just use their speech. You know, those kids. Yeah, but they didn't use their speech to well, try hang on, to hang persuade on. the other, right? We, we have to recap the Yale thing. So there was it was Halloween at Yale, Halloween in New Haven. <clears throat> so um, the you know universities appoint people to be in charge of particular. Um, uh, was it residence halls? Residence halls yeah. and houses, and uh, in Chicago we called them resident masters. I'm gonna. I think they're called resident masters at Yale. I'm gonna call them resident masters because I don't like to learn new things. So Chris and Erica Christakis are resident masters, and <clears throat> Halloween comes along. Um, somebody, um, somebody from Yale sends around this email. Hey guys, you're gonna dress up for Halloween. Try not to do something culturally insensitive. Um, try to think about how it'll affect other people. 
consider, you know, historic uh, oppression of and stereotypical depictions of blah, 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 you get the picture. Erica Christakis is a developmental psychologist. She puts out uh, a little email. You can find it um, to the students of their residence hall. And she said, you know, you guys, Yale probably shouldn't be making these kinds of decisions for you. It should be up to you. You should, you know, and it might be a good thing to, and I think she used the word experiment in these years, and maybe even, dare I say, be a little offensive, I'm quoting from memory, but be a little offensive, and if you see something that offends you, maybe go up and confront that person and deal with it, or maybe just ignore it. And it was written in this very polite mode. And um, basically, the two of them were barraged with uh, abuse. Chris Christakis showed up to try to talk to the students, and they screamed at him and yelled at him. and. They demanded that the university, uh, and they yelled obscenities at him, and they demanded that uh, the both of them step down as employees of, uh, you know, Yale Housing, as resident masters, which they eventually did. And I think, I'll have to check, I think Erica Christakis left Stop Teaching. Uh, at Yale, so she is no longer employed by Yale. Um, so, so how how's how how's the story supposed to go that that's not coercion? These students, many of whom were from um, underprivileged and depressed communities, historically oppressed populations, used the only thing they had. They used their speech. To make a change in their community. Okay, but this strikes me as a very important point because it gets at what you were talking about with respect to autonomy and these other things. It matters how the speech is used. Yes, it does, Dan. In other words, it's one thing for me to make an appeal to your reason to try to convince you to change my your mind. And it's another thing for me to use my words to try to bully or intimidate mm -hmm. some fearful administrator mm -hmm. into depriving some employee of their livelihood, right? I mean, that's that, th those are two very different uses of speech. And it would seem to yeah. me that only the first is consistent with liberal values. The second is not, right? I mean, the, the second is a form of sort of mobism, right? Um, 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 and it's, pre it's precisely the sort of thing that goes on in totalitarian countries, right? Um, um, All right. Um, well, let's you inform on people, you 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 intimidate them, you deprive, you, you you try to drive them out of their place of work, you you you, you make them pariahs. Um, um, these are all mo modes. They're verbal. 
but they don't involve appeal to anybody's rational consciousness, and they don't accept the notion that you might get a no for an answer, right? Right. Um, um, <clears throat> well, that's, um, first of all, look, Orwell is kind of the, the god of this tradition where he saw, you know, he was in liberal 1940s Britain <laughs> and knew a lot about what was going on in the Soviet Union, Stalin, and he saw that while Britain was very, very, very far away from being in the kind of dire straits that the Soviet Union was, they were sometimes operating by a common logic. Right? And he wanted to criticize that. So I'm not insensible to these sort of comparisons to, tal to totalitarianism, but let <laughs> They represent a totalitarian impulse. They are not totalitarian. Yeah. But they don't come from a liberal understanding yeah. of what is a leg the legitimate ways to try and persuade someone to change their mind. Or to I just don't. Behavior. I don't want to blow this up right at the beginning, with um, just by sort of like I'm opening the fire hose of totalitarianism and 20th century atrocity. I want to say, I understand they're not like that. They're not. You know, I'm not in any way playing any. I'm. I'm not trying to tar them with that, and they. They're. This is not as sort of as moral high stakes as the kind of life threatening. No, of course, yeah, no, of course not. But you know, to explore that idea, first of all, okay, when we talked about changing people's mind, it's not just like they had to change the Christakis's mind or give up. They could also make a different, or I think we would view as legitimate, a different a kind of appeal to the university. Right, they can also try to change the administration's mind. Right, exactly. <laughs> and which would then force the Christakis to do something different. Um, and they could try to change the student body's mind to put pressure on, on the administration or change different kinds of you know, different groups' minds that would have some sway with the administration. So I still want to say that's different from what they actually did. But how is it different? <coughs> I would want to say, well, what they did was really, is they tried to impose a strong cost on people who, um, who were not going to behave or speak in the way that they wanted them to behave or speak. In this case, a couple of professors who were resident masters, they said, you're not allowed to say those things, and you're not allowed to make those rules, which they, they weren't even really making rules, but leave that go. Um, they said, if you don't do what we want you to do, we are going to put you through an ordeal, which will be extremely stressful and humiliating. You will feel alienated from your community. Um, you'll feel that you've hurt people who are, in some sense, dependent on you or you're meant to care for. Um, and we will 
threaten, we will make it hard for your employer to continue to employ you. We'll and put you through an ordeal, the worst manifestation of which may be the resulting in the, the loss of your livelihood. Mm -hmm. So, that is not a rational appeal. Now, <clears throat> there's this famous passage in On Liberty about the corn merchants. Um, it, Mill suggests that we shouldn't, if there's a guy in an angry mob in a big protest in front of the corn merchants, this is the scene from the opening scene of Coriolanus, suffer us to starve in their, uh, their houses filled with grain and there are people angry. <clears throat> and somebody says, get them, uh, you, know, you know, knock down the gates, grab the corn. Mill suggests we can't tolerate that speech. In most, most places, you know, there are laws against inciting a riot. <clears throat> you can actually clap handcuffs on somebody who's doing that in that situation. Um, you don't clap handcuffs on a guy who goes and writes pamphlets about these corn merchants are really exploiting everyone. They're not paying their fair share. We need to pass laws and tax the corn merchant that maybe sees all their corn, you know. So Mill points out, the guy who writes the pamphlet about seizing the corn may do a lot more harm to the corn merchant than the guy who shouts out in the middle of a crowd, get, you know, grab their corn. But it does seem like the writing of the pamphlet is something a liberal society would want to permit, and the shouting things out in a riot, maybe they would not. So I think the real key distinction here is that there's a deliberative process in between the action, the debate and the action um, in the case of writing the pamphlets. So if you write a pamphlet, you go around, you try to build a consensus about what should be done about these corn merchants, and then they, through democratic means, enact that consensus. <coughs> and that consensus may result in the state coercing the corn the corn merchant, right? Right. Um, um, but but the point is that the way you got to that point, <laughs> right? Right. So so, so what's, what's, ob what's objectionable about what the, what the what the social justice crowd is doing is not that it ultimately ends up in a in some coerciveness and coercive action, right. but rather in how it gets to the coercive action, right? I mean, is, is that in a sense what you're saying? Yeah, it's um. It, it's trying to do an end run around deliberation and trying to immediately force somebody to act by just imposing an indirect cost on them. Right. And in a way, and they often use this language, that's about changing the culture. Changing the culture so that they become compliant to these sort of cultural norms. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, it's funny. I, I liked actually the way that you just phrased it a minute ago. Um, they're trying to go around. What do you say? Go around or make an end run around deliberation? Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me that one of the ways that they've done this very effectively is by trying as hard as possible to treat speech as not even speech, right? 
In other words, in other words, this whole idea that now, for example, one of the things that the social justice movement has done is redefine harm, right? So that now harm isn't just some sort of tangible, quantifiable injury that's done to a person. Harm mm -hmm. is defined as anything that the person finds untoward, right? Um, 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 and so I can now say that I've been harmed simply by virtue of someone saying something or by virtue of my, of my hearing something, right? So if, um, I say, if I say, I don't think transgender women are really women. Right. They now say that you've actually harmed somebody by saying that because they've redefined harm. I mean, Mill is the one who's famous for the harm principle, right? Mill is the one who says, look, people's speech should be free, um, um, and indeed their behavior should be free, uh, up until it actually harms another person, in which case there's a legitimate reason to suppress it. Um, but by harm, he had in mind tangible, quantifiable, measurable harm, right? He did not have in mind mere subjective uh, uh, dislike or... I don't, dis I don't know if it's, it's attributed to Jefferson. I don't know if it's authentically Jeffersonian, but it's what picks my pocket and breaks my leg. Right. That's right. That's right. And so one of the ways that this, this, the social justice movement, as you say, doesn't end right around deliberation, is take a whole bunch of things that were traditionally thought of as matters of deliberation and now turn them into actual actions of acts of violence, right? Right? So now to speak is just to speak is to harm someone. Just to express a certain idea is to harm one. A related way that they've done this is by redefining what the word safe means. Right? So now the word safe doesn't just mean freedom from harm in the old sense. It means freedom from harm in the new sense, right? Which means to be safe now requires that you never hear anything that makes that you dislike, see anything that you dislike, um, and you know. I mean, I'll give you the sort of the the, 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 the sort of the nadir of this sort of thing. Um, this is going on right now at my university. I just received an email about this. I actually just resigned from a committee because of this. Um, our concert chorale is scheduled to sing at the inauguration. And a bunch of professors have circulated this email saying that we should not participate in the, in, in, in the, in the uh, inauguration because it shows support for Trump and that we've had, that they've had students tell them that if the chorale goes and performs at the inauguration, they will no longer feel safe on campus. Now, to me, this is a perver an absolute perversion of what the ordinary meaning of the word safe is, and it's very clearly designed to render what would once have been considered matters for deliberation and disputation off the table, right? Now, it's like you punched somebody, right? Mm -hmm. Or shot them, or tied them up, right? Um, and I guess... At least guess, this, this seems to make me more. This seems to make me more angry than it makes you, partly because it strikes me as obviously wildly dishonest. I mean, all these people can't be that stupid as to actually think that, right? Well, and so, uh, and I, so it's very manipulative and disingenuous. It's a kind of um, 
it's 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 a conscious subversion of other people's reason and and consciousness. It's not it's not an inadvertent one. Like oh well, you know, I just got caught up in a bad idea, right? No one, don't tell me anyone doesn't know what the word safe and harm means who speaks English, right? The, I mean, the chief kind of apostles of this kind of view, of, or this kind of characterization of what's gone wrong, are Jonathan Haidt and Connor Friedersdorf. Yeah, Jonathan that's right. Apologist. Connor Friedersdorf um, is uh, a reporter at The Atlantic. Uh, and I, I like both people. But, uh, well, I like Future Star more. But, um, and damn it, they've both been on blogging hands, so I'm back to my provincialism. But, while I think there's some truth to this, I think it would be a mistake to see the kind of hollowing out of the harm principle as the center of the story. I think the deeper story is, again, the story of autonomy. Um, there are, so there are two aspects to this. The, suppose I say, I don't think transgendered women are really women, and you have a transgendered sister, and this harms you in the new, in newfangled the new sense. It's, it's distressing. Right. As it would be, um, <clears throat> no doubt. Um, there are two ways in which autonomy can become involved here, and I think they're both very much at work. If you look, you can't just look at the particular that complaints some sort of PC liberals make on a particular issue. You have to look at, listen to where they talk in a more programmatic mode, too, and that'll give you some insight into why they're objecting to particular things. So... Why would it? Why would you need to prevent me from saying um, <coughs> the you know transgender women are not really women? Um, <coughs> well, one thing is when I say something like that, it just brings up a feeling in you. It causes distress in you, or anxiety, or uh, what would you want to call it? What's what's an actual word that would use? Um, triggers you, right? Um, and you have this sort of negative affect. Well, it's sort of quietly assumed in a lot of this discourse that there's not really much you can do about that. That your sort of ability to regulate your subjective states is pretty nil. That you're, you know, my saying something could bring up in you a very very suddenly and very rapidly a very traumatic experience and that it's not really within you to control that. Right. It, pre it presupposes a kind of lack of autonomy on the part of the allegedly harmed person. Right. Yes. And their right. ability and when we talk about autonomy here we mean some degree of influence over their own thoughts and moods and ability to react to other people. But there's another point which is also very important and I think sometimes goes missing in the sort of height Friedersdorf kind of, um, kind of uh, narrative, which is I can harm you by 
normalizing that kind of behavior, right? If I go around saying things like that, like, um, like um, you know, trans, transgender women are not real women, people, other people will think it's okay to say that. And other people will say, think it's okay to say that directly to, um, to that person, to, to trans, actually transgender people. And maybe they'll, they'll, have, they'll start to think it's okay to treat them as inferiors or others. And that's, you know, that's why, you know, what at first seems so odd to people about what preoccupies these kinds of people. You know, why are they so worried about a stand-up comics joke? Why are they so worried about how many women of color are in Star Wars movies? Why, you know, why is this politically important? Well, if you really have this view that culture um, determines people in this almost automatic way, then you really want to change those cultural properties. Okay, so there are two parts of that. There's one, is again, there's this assume this automatic uptick from what the cult, what's in the culture to the belief formation of the person you're talking to. That there's just, there's, if I put some things that will sort of suggest a belief, people will be more likely to form that belief. Um, and then there's the sort of belief formation to behavior. That if people form the beliefs that, you know, transgender women are not really women, then they... That will they will start to act that way, and that will that action will that'll express itself in behavior. So it's again this sort of degraded faith in autonomy, and again it's a kind of end run around rationality. If the the the, the sort of collective thing was a an end run around deliberation as a kind of collective autonomy, now we're talking about a an end run around private rationality and thinking as a kind of end run around sort of uh, private and personal autonomy. Personal and private. Um, so I think that's that's really the center of the shrubbery maze. That if people are really not autonomous and just kind of products of the culture around them, then the locus of intervention becomes the culture itself. Yeah, I, I, look, I see that and I guess you know, prob maybe the differences between us in terms of how we perceive all of this is just what we emphasize. Um, um, you want to emphasize the sort of the, the, the earnest belief in this mm -hmm. lack of autonomy on the part of, of such folks. And I guess what I want to emphasize is the lack of respect or the devaluation of said mm -hmm. autonomy. Because look, I mean, it's perfectly acceptable to pass anti-discrimination laws, which mm -hmm. prevent a person from behaving in a discriminatory fashion towards a transgender person. But what's completely unacceptable is to think that you can somehow force someone to stop believing what they want to believe about transgender about trans transgender women. Um, yeah. That's where the liberalism comes in, and it seems to me that these people don't just want to stamp out the behavior. I mean, if, if, if that was it, then, then, then anti-discrimination laws would be enough. 
they want to purge the society of people with that sort of consciousness, right? And but again, th that's the sense to which, and, and, and they'll do it any way they have to. They'll do it by costing you your job. They'll do it by, sh by, by, by ruining your reputation. They'll do it by any means. They'll do it even by physical assault. I mean, you know, there's an incredible video that circulated around that went viral. Um, this professor at the University of Toronto, Jordan Peterson, um, you know, you know, we're talking about this in terms of the, the, the behavior of activists and sort of, but you have to understand that this is now all even becoming enshrined in laws, right? So th th there's a, apparently a, a bill, uh, whatever they call bills in Canada, that, that, that's going to make it a legally actionable offense to refuse to use someone's preferred gender pronoun, right? So this isn't just a, a law regarding what I, I'm not allowed to say. It's now a law what I have to say, right? Um, um, in other words, it's a direct invasion of one's conscience, right, and one's freedom of conscience, and one, one's ability to speak in the manner that one thinks appropriate. Um, and this this professor, Jordan Peterson, as a professor of psychiatry, says, I, I, I refuse, I'm not going to use these, uh, you know, gendered pronouns that I think are bogus, right? And I don't care if you request that I use them, I'm not going to do it, and it's outrageous that this should now become legally actionable. And there was a rally uh, having to do with this, where a transgender, this is all on video, a transgender, and I'll link to it, a transgendered activist in the audience actually physically assaulted mm -hmm. one of the people on the other side, and a person standing right next to this person, this individual, another activist, when the policeman came by, looked straight in the camera and smiled and said, I didn't see anything, nothing happened. And then had like a smug smile on her face, and then gave the finger to the camera. And I, 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 I just perceive that there is no length to which these people will not go, even outright assault, and lying about it afterwards, in order to ensure that nobody is left walking around with the wrong views, right? And I mean, how much more illiberal could one get, right? I think that, well, we don't want to take extreme examples as representative because even in, you know, the more, we, we described the distasteful scene, what I view as the distasteful scene at Yale, but nothing ever came to blows and that's been the case with lots and lots of protests. That's the first I'm hearing, well, there was the Melissa Click thing, which was, you know, ugly. But there's been very little violence, and I don't think most people who hold these feelings would go so far as resorting to violence. But let me answer your more fundamental point. Um, I, I don't think you've quite shed your own liberal presuppositions in looking at these things. You said they don't just want to stop the behavior. They have to go farther than that and stop all the the beliefs and the thinking. That's why they're but, not satisfied simply with there being anti-discrimination laws. Right? Well, the, the, see, the, the key thing you said was farther than that. Again, if you view this through the sort of more deterministic lens, they don't believe that they're going to get change by anti-discrimination laws. They believe you get it by changing the culture. Which is your, your point about autonomy. 
Right. If you don't think that people are autonomous agents, then it's not enough to simply appeal to them. In other words, you have to coerce them in some way, right? They're coerced whichever way, whichever happens. It's just now they're coerced by their past and, you know, whatever yeah. culture. Or maybe. their implicit biases as... Uh, I've just been dealing with this. There's there's been a lot a big brouhaha about the implicit association test that people have been using to show that everybody is a closet racist, um, and um, and so that's just, sort of another way that they sort of go at it. It's like you know, even if you're consciously not a racist, right? You're unconsciously one, and that's still going to make you act racist, even if, you know, I convince you with all the best reasons in the world, and you say, yes, 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 I agree, I'll never do that. You're still going to be racist anyway, because it's in your unconscious, right? Um, um, I take it that that is also a form of a rejection of autonomy, right? Um, yeah. Can be. I, I think maybe there are more legitimate uses for thinking about um, implicit bias, but... I don't. We don't need to prosecute that necessarily. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you want? To, well, we're we're, we're pretty long. We're pretty long, so we should probably end pretty soon. Um, I think I think it's your point is relatively clear about that. You think that the key the key change and and wherever it came from, if you want to ascribe it to Frankfurt School or to Foucault or whoever, that we don't have to we don't have to worry about that right now. Um, that the key change occurred when there began to be, at least in some quarters of the left, a significant shift away from belief in individual autonomy in favor of a kind of view that people's attitudes and behaviors are largely formed by outside forces or by natural forces, right? Um, um, a lot of these implicit bias arguments argue that these are actually natural forces, um, 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 uh, uh, neurological, cognitive, etc. Um, and in that sense, then, I think it's pretty clear that the influence of this doesn't just come from the, the new left, but also comes from social science, right? Yeah, or um, social science viewed a certain way. Or some portion of social science, which seems to show these sorts of things. Although it is worth noting, I mean, one of the things, one of the stronger things I think Jonathan Haidt has pointed out is that this whole picture that you've painted that the social justice community is claiming about how people can't help but be triggered and all this sort of thing is exactly what all the cognitive behavioral therapists are telling you is exactly what a dysfunctional, disordered person mm -hmm. is, right? <laughs> Catastrophizing, overgeneralizing, right, you know. Uh, um, um, inevitability theses, right? All these sorts of things. You'll go to your shrink and he'll spend an hour with you telling you not to think this way. And then there's a whole political movement designed upon thinking precisely in this sort of way. And there's something very ironic about that, right? Yeah, and this is something I hadn't necessarily intended to say this, but I've had problems with anxiety. And so I'm, I'm in some sense a person for whom these people who are talking about demanding trigger warnings and such um, are fighting because they want, they want to, they want trigger warnings for people like you is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Or, or 
I don't know if they really understand me, but, you know, for people who have anxiety at any rate, and I'm nominally one of those. So, since they have such care for my well-being, you would think that they would take some time to actually understand empirically what anxiety is, what it's like, what the causes of it are, and what makes it better and what makes it worse. But they are decidedly incurious about that. And this folk theory of triggering seems to be based on very little indeed. And you're right, Haidt has has not been the only one um, who has said that this encouraging hypervigilance is a a term used in the uh, literature uh, is exactly counterproductive. Yeah. The whole notion of viewing things as microaggressions, let's say, is precisely what cognitive behavioral therapy tells you you should not do, right? If you want to be... um, David, uh, we got cut off. I don't know why the recorder just stopped recording. Maybe I pressed something by mistake. Um, Where we had got cut off, you and I were just wrapping up, and specifically we were talking about what we thought the the near future held um, uh, and and what the the fortunes of liberalism in the future would be uh, on the left, on the the political left. Um, I was, I I have to admit to being quite gloomy about this. Um, I don't see the social science going in a different direction. If anything, as thing become, as neuromania uh, become, ramps up, I think we're going to view human belief and behavior even more deterministically than we already do, which means that the fortunes of autonomy are, are the scientific fortunes of autonomy are to me very unclear. Um, and there's just too much political advantage to these sorts of tactics for me to see anybody voluntarily letting them go and returning to the sort of conception of political discourse in which one accepts the idea that one may lose the argument um, or that the other person may refuse to accept the argument. Um, and, um, and so for those two reasons, I'm, I'm really rather, rather, rather gloomy uh, about this. And um, uh, so I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how you feel. I mean, the, the one last thing I was going to say is that I also think that this is really, this is really bad in another sense. And that is, I at least have argued in several places that I think that part of the reason for the renewed good fortunes of the right uh, is precisely because the left has decided to go in this social justice direction rather than the classical liberal one, um, and thus has become uh, a very easy target for right-wing uh, uh, demagoguery uh, and, 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 and propaganda. And um, I think that the left's national political fortunes will continue to be very poor uh, so long as this dimension of the, of, of, of the left continues, so long as liberalism is, 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 is in retreat and this kind of illiberal progressivism is ascendant. So what do yeah. you feel about it? Then we'll close on your thoughts. Well, I think the future to come will be, will depend in a very large measure on the arguments we make and the decisions we make just now. Um, This is a very important debate. This first political correctness became a sort of flashpoint in the national conversation in 1990 
and became a huge source of energy and great quantities of ink were spilt in 1990 and 1991 and carrying on for the next few years. And uh, there are two firing line debates. There's a whole uh, issue of partisan review and there was a real drop-off in both popular and academic debates. There's a book of essays published in 1995 called After PC um, that I'm aware of. And I've read things from around the turn of the millennium where they said, where authors were saying, you know, you may think that it's ridiculous to continue to write about political correctness, but we think it still merits talking about. Right. And for a long time, it was a subject that was taken to have died. And we saw in fall 2015 how wrong that was. You know, this, now we saw how much energy went into this debate again in 2015. It came only, back arguably in a much more stringent and extreme form than, it, than its original, it seems to me. And certainly it seemed to have gained adherence in the meantime. Yes. It's now been 25 years, over 20, 27 years, that this has been going on in one form or another. And there are still thing on the, still people on the left arguing that it doesn't exist. And the only people who are acknowledging it must be sort of closet racists and sexists. And there are people on the right who are just saying, you know, their kids will grow out of it, you know. Uh, it, or just mocking making fun of them, you know, silly, you know, Lena Dunham, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That will not do. This has become something fairly permanent in the political conversation. This has gained adherence. It's become fairly influential. We will, we need to deal with it, and we need a more serious discourse about it. Um, and as to whether that discourse will succeed, I'm, I'm a, I'll match you gloom for gloom, Dan, but, you know, the only chance we have is to try to address it. And my my hope is that maybe something like the absurdity of electing a Donald Trump to the presidency can be a kind of rock-bottom moment to say we need new tactics and to think rethink certain things. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that, that's part of the reason why I've been trying to make the case very publicly that I think that we owe Trump in part to this development on the left, this emergence of this, the, the, the emergence of this, this type of progressivism on the left, um, um, because I'm hoping that if people at least will buy into that a little bit, will buy into it a little bit that, that what we're seeing in Trump is a kind of a, a backlash, a very extreme backlash to something. That maybe that will cause you know sort of wiser and cooler heads to prevail on our own side. Uh, um, the problem is is that I just have not seen very much willingness on the left to accept that thesis. What I'm seeing a lot of is just doubling down on saying that the reason Trump won is because America's full of racists and sexists and homophobes that live in all the asshole parts of the country, um, and. It just seems to me that if we just double down, we're just going to lose the next election too. Yeah. Right. So, so well, your gloominess is, is 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 comes with more of a smile than mine does, and so I will have to take that. Um, 
thank you so much, David, um, for this uh, really excellent second conversation. And I'm sure it'll give the, uh, the, uh, the audience a lot to chew over as well as to fight about in the, uh, in the comments section. To the comments. That's right. To the comments we go. Um, and uh, I look forward to speaking with you again. All right. All right, my friend. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.